Hello, this is Yarrow, host of the Vested Capital Podcast, the show about how people make money, build capital, and then put their capital to work. I interview startup founders who've enjoyed big exits, much like my guest on today's episode, angel investors, venture capitalists, crypto and stock traders, real estate investors, and leaders in tech. These are all my favorite topics. And in fact, I'm pretty much doing almost all of those things myself. So obviously coming from a place of real passion about this topic. And my guest today for episode number five of Vested Capital, Chris Baki, is a fantastic example of a startup founder who's had multiple exits and built up some incredible capital, made a lot of money by just being a great founder. He got a start in a company called Rent Juice. He was one of the early employees in that company, which was in the real estate tech space. That was acquired by Zillow, which you probably know. That was sort of early days for Zillow. So Chris was a part of that company as it grew and then listed on the stock exchange. Chris actually made some some early six figures with the, that acquisition and his shares in Zillow. He'll talk a little bit about that, so you can, what he did with that money. Then we move on to the next company that Chris started to work for, 42 Floors, which was acquired by Notel. And then we dive into the real story here, which is the company called Interview, which Chris was a co-founder of. And that company company was acquired by Indeed in 2017 after only being operating for two years. And amazingly enough, and this is really why I wanted to get Chris onto the podcast, Indeed and also RentJuice, the, the first company he was a part of, both these companies sold for very large multiples of what they were actually doing in terms of revenue at the time. So with, for example, Interviewed, that company was doing about two and a half million in annual run rate, yet it was acquired by Indeed for, he said, roughly mid eight figures, which means somewhere around the 40 to $50 million mark. And RentJuice was acquired also for about $45 million. And it was only doing, according to Chris, about half a million a year in run rate. So these are very large multiples of what a company is doing in, in annual revenue and probably even less in profit to get these mid eight figure deals. That's very unusual. And I was just very curious, how is that possible? And Chris does a great job to explain what leads to a strategic buyer like that paying these higher multiples. It really involves the right stakeholders being involved. And when I say stakeholders, I mean both the investors and the clients. Sometimes an investor is a client. Sometimes an investor is a client and investor and then becomes the acquirer of the company. So you're going to hear all of that and how that kind of came together from Chris in this really exciting interview. And we also talk a little bit about what Chris did with all the money he made from the sales. So if you go all the way to the end, we talk what he did with his capital. Great interview for anyone who's interested in how to grow a tech startup. Chris operated in two spaces in the real estate area, real estate tech, and then in the HR recruitment tech space, which is where his current startup, Lasky.com, operates in as well. So he's still in that recruitment space. I love this. I know you will too. Before I hit play on this interview, I just want to once again mention my company, InboxDone.com, which actually tied in really well to today's interview because we talked a lot about hiring, which is what Chris did with his company interviewed and what continues to happen with Indeed. And funnily enough, my own company, Inbox Done, we had some of the same practices in place when we hired or when we hire people to manage your email for you, which is actually what the company does. We're an email management company. We provide a human being who will take over managing, organizing, and replying to your emails for you. So if you're a busy founder, professional, entrepreneur, uh, management executive, someone who has too much email and you want to break free from that, let someone else handle 99% of your email, including replying to your messages and building a real system to handle that for you so you can focus on what's important in your life, in your business, and get to work on what really matters to you. We are the solution. It's inboxdone.com. Okay, let's begin today's interview. Here we go. Okay, so I'm here with Chris Baki today for what I hope will be a really interesting interview because Chris has got such a good background in terms of starting companies and selling or getting acquired very quickly. It's one of the things I noticed about your companies, Chris, you seem to scale fast, exit, start another one. So love to hear all those stories. I'm just going to read off the ones in your LinkedIn profile so I can get them all right. You're currently the founder and CEO of Lasky.com, which we'd love to talk about. You were the co-founder of Interviewed, which was acquired by Indeed in 2017. 
that's the one I read a little bit of a, an AMA on indie hackers about how you sold that and you getting like a mid eight figure deals. Amazing. CEO of 42 Floors, you worked for Zillow for a while and Rent Juice, which was acquired by Zillow. So I'm assuming that's how you started to work for them. And I believe if Rent Juice was your first company, that was also sold for a mid eight figure deal, if, if I'm correct. Yep. Yep. Was an employee at that one and then founder at Interviewed and in, in now Asky. Okay, so there's so much there. I'd actually love to go through this in chronological order because I think it'll build on each other. So do you mind if we go back in time and talk about Chris, even before school, were you entrepreneurial in any kind of way? Yeah, a little bit. Grew up in Colorado, so I was always shoveling snow and stuff for neighbors and mowing lawns and that kind of stuff. Definitely, I was starting little side businesses. I put a plastic tarp down the side of my parents' hill and would charge neighborhood kids like 25 cents to slide down. I like put the garden hose up there. In retrospect, I was probably using like $40 of water to make like $3 per day during the summer. But, you know, my parents didn't seem to mind. So a uh, little stuff like that here and there growing up. And then I think as I got older, actually, I approaching kind of high school, college, had less of a desire maybe to to actually start something. Kind of always assumed that I would be an employee at, at a big company and that was and that was fine with me then it wasn't really till like right when i was graduating college that i, I sort of got the bug to dive into a startup and I, I figured sort of the best way to dive in would be to you know apply and kind of work for somebody who was a great entrepreneur and, and join as an early employee learn first and then eventually five or ten or fifteen years down the road kind of start my own thing and that's sort of what happened okay so at university did you study something related to business or something else no, political science. Uh, was was very eager to get out of college. Didn't really particularly enjoy it. Kind of coming in, thought maybe I wanted to be a lawyer. So studied, you know, pre-law, political science, and then kind of rushed through that degree. Didn't change it because I had already done some pre-law classes. So powered through in like two and a half years, which wasn't, you know, that I was particularly intelligent. I don't think it was just I took a ton of classes like over the summer and whatnot. So I did like, you know, just fine and, and did kind of the bare minimum to get through and, and get the degree. And then, yeah, I think very quickly into that experience, I, I saw all of the other kids around me who were actually wanting to be lawyers. I think, you know, I, I realized exactly how much boring reading being a lawyer actually is. And, you know, it became very uninteresting to me quite quickly. But I really, at that point, didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I think I was, I was leaning more towards something real estate. I was interning with a couple kind of real estate private equity companies throughout, throughout college over the summer when I was taking summer classes. And so that life seemed a lot more appealing than being on sort of the law side of, of real estate. Can we timestamp this? Like, were we looking like one of the dot-com bubbles was around? Like, what was around you in terms of the, the economy at the time? Yeah, so this was, I guess, started college in 2007. This is kind of like during, it was like my first year of college, everything was great. And then the, the last kind of year and a half, two years of my, my final two years of college, you know, 2008, 2009. And so was was working for, a private equity company in college that was buying mostly commercial real estate and commercial mortgages in Los Angeles for like somewhere between like seven and 30 cents on the dollar from where they were priced in 2007. And so that whole world was quite fascinating. And, and it was clearly, you know, there were there were crazy deals to be had if you if you had the, the relationships to get, you know, mortgages and get loans and, and have, you know, capital kind of in the wings. And so worked for a company that had about $2 billion under management as an intern and then actually joined them very briefly out of college before that first startup and just kind of almost like family office money. And so that was very interesting. And I was interested in like being the person who was running the family office as like the, the kind of sole LP. But I think I was also interested a little bit in like the operations of real estate. And that's specifically why then in 2010, kind of coming out of college after three years, I, I joined Rent Juice. And Rent Juice was a, a residential real estate, you know, software company. And so that was sort of how that all, I guess, aligned. And at the time too, 2010 was particularly interesting and, and happy to get into it. But what you generally see, at least in the US with real estate professionals, is you see this massive number of people getting licensed in 2005, 2006, 2007. All of those people who got broker's licenses or agent licenses in the US stopped practicing in 2008, 2009. And then this whole new flood of people is coming out in 2010 who, necess who didn't necessarily get burned by late 2007, 2008, 2009. And all of a sudden in 2010, 2011, things are amazing again. Everybody wants to be buying real estate. People want to be selling real estate. Certainly not true throughout the country. I mean, there's still markets 10 years ago in 2011 that were, that were very hard hit. 
parts of you know Arizona, Nevada, Florida, and whatnot. But in a lot of the markets that first startup rent juice was operating in, you saw just this flood of people kind of coming into property management and, and into mortgage careers and certainly into kind of the sales side of real estate as well. Tell me more about rent juice. So what exactly did they do and, and why did you choose to to join them? As with many early jobs, early careers, it was just all quite luck. After working for just a few months, I don't even remember how long it was, but I think full-time I worked for like 6 to 12 months after college at this kind of family office in, in Los Angeles doing real estate private equity. And working there as an intern was quite different from working full-time. Actually quite hated the experience of being, you know, like the the low man on the totem pole and just having to do all the all the sort of shit work for very, very little pay and watching sort of the VPs and the president and all the the, the family that was sort of this LP get extremely wealthy in that period. And I just saw like ahead of me, it was like I always imagined that this was the dream. I loved real estate. I came to love, I think, the private equity and investing side of real estate. And all of a sudden I was like 21, I guess at the time, had graduated from college and was like, you know, do I really want to stay in this role? Like looking at the 60-year-old guy who was like in a VP title at this, you know, company going, okay, I have to work here for 40 years to like work my way up to be, you know, making real money. And that that's obviously not true everywhere, but I think with this like isolated vision of of what this company was, had a a like friend of a friend who was also in real estate in Los Angeles. He introduced me to a good college friend of his who was in Boston at the time and had just kind of moved out to San Francisco, had started a company while he was at Harvard Business School, I think around 2009, kind of turned it into a company, I think late 2009, 2010, and then moved out to the Bay Area and was hiring, had raised kind of a seed round and and was, I guess, on pace to raise a Series A and so joined as as sort of a business hire there. So it was sort of through a connection in real estate. I didn't have any experience. I never had a desire to be a software developer or a product person. I didn't really know what technology was, but I figured, hey, like, you know, uh, part of being a analyst at a small real estate private equity company is that you do have to go gather information. You have to talk to a lot of people. You're constantly on the phone. You're sending lots of emails. You're out in person sort of, you know, shaking hands. And so if I could do that, then presumably I could do it everywhere. So just decided to like jump into this kind of early sales role and really sharpen that skill of software sales, essentially. So yeah, RentJuice was a... It was ultimately a CRM for the residential real estate industry. So all these people that are flooding into the real estate industry and getting licensed, it was very hard, I think, in 2011 to actually track all of your different deals. So if you were an agent or a broker in Miami, in New York, Chicago, Miami, any one of these kind of major markets where things were rebounding quite quickly... What we saw was a ton of real estate brokers and agents that were primarily doing for sale stuff in 2005, 2006, 2007, were now shifting over to rentals. And so this CRM and this company got really good at the rental side of real estate, selling mostly to property managers and agents who were managing rentals on the side. It was a very kind of cheap, affordable solution, mostly selling to individuals versus to kind of large companies. And then that company grew. I was there for, I guess, about a year and a half, two years. We were acquired in 2012 for $45 million by Zillow. And then I joined Zillow as uh, kind of leading business development there right around the time of their IPO. Our whole team sort of joined. And many of that team actually still almost 10 years later is still there, ironically. But yeah, it was it was a great place to work. Zillow taught me a lot about sort of how a extremely fast-growing company did things. It was a very different company then than it is today, much smaller, obviously. I think when we joined, there were three to 400 people. I would guess there's something like six to 10,000 people there, kind of total between all of the, the main employees and the contractors and stuff at Zillow now. So very different time, but learned a lot and, and incredible leadership there from a team perspective. So from the, the rent juice experience and, and the Zillow experience, which included the acquisition, were you early enough at Rent Juice that you were given some kind of like shares? And I know you were coming from this experience with the like the family office where you saw other people getting rich, but after a very long career, was the Rent Juice experience kind of meeting the need to increase how much money and how much capital you were making? Or was that really just a stepping stone to, to the next thing that came along? Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. It was like, it was a, it was a ton of money for me at the time, but I don't even remember exactly exactly what it was. Because you had shares. Yeah, because like, because yeah. I had because I had shares. I think everybody had some sort of very meaningful all the way down to very minor stake in the company. I think 
by the time we were acquired, it was something like 31 people was the, the company size or, or headcount size of, of RentJuice. So everybody had shares. And I was sort of in this interesting middle pack where you know the founders got extremely rich. I wasn't a founder. And I was also on the sales side. So I think the engineers also made like significant money, but I was early enough on the sales side. And then the stock price did did well enough that it continued to go up. I think the effective price, there were actually two stock splits at Zillow. So the effective stock price was like you know $7 per share. It's something like $110 per share today of Zillow. And so if you had actually held on to that, you, you've done you know very well. Did you? Half of it. So okay. funny story. <laughs> I don't even remember what the amount was, but made something like you know a couple hundred thousand dollars in equity while between the acquisition and from working at Zillow. I sold like a hundred thousand of it very quickly. Took that into five small down payments for like hundred to hundred and fifty thousand dollar homes in North Texas. Sort of decided that okay, we had sold software to property managers and landlords. I wanted to now start sort of building my real estate portfolio. The cash flow on those properties. Buying properties in 2011, 2012 in North Texas, the cash flow opportunity was phenomenal. The appreciation was terrible, you know, especially relative to Zillow's stock, you know, going up something like 15x or whatever over over that same time period. But you know, was glad I did it. Uh, it sort of dipped my toe into into real estate investing, and then ultimately joined 42 Floors as an early employee again. Uh, eventually became COO of that company, and that company was acquired by Notel in I think 20, 2018, but I joined in 2013. And that was the commercial real estate version of Zillow, sort of helping people find and navigate, finding office space, finding retail space, things like that. Okay. And I'm guessing as a CEO, you were also a fairly large shareholder by the time that was acquired too. Yeah, exactly. So started off in, in a very vague as an early business hire. I think my title was just like business operations for a long time ultimately sort of took over a lot of the financial aspects, sales aspects, and operational aspects of, of 42 Floors. And that company had sort of a crazy venture story where the, the founders had raised something like 20... So I think it was like 20 to $22 million pre-revenue, which this was happening in like 2012, 2013. So it was, it was you know, companies like are doing that all the time. But at, the, at that time, it was relatively unheard of for a company to have raised so much and then I think when I was hired and several other people were hired onto the growth side and the product side and you know, the marketing side and things like that, it was really, hey, we have this incredible leadership at this company that was able to successfully like create this vision for what the commercial real estate version of Zillow actually is. Now we need to execute. So how do we find customers? Who are our customers? Are we selling to agents? Are we selling to tenants? Are we selling to landlords? How do we monetize? And so all of that was sort of figured out over you know, roughly two years and, you know, very fun experience. And then after, after sort of working there, receiving significant equity, but ultimately not being like the person in charge as, you know, a non-founder decided I, I really had the itch after I think something like six years, five or six years combined working in these early real estate tech companies. And in 2015, then started interviewed for the first time as a founder. Yeah, so uh, you you already came into interviewed with a lot of experience. I mean, two exits, working at Zillow, a, a massive company. You would have seen everything from startup phase to IPO phase and beyond. And besides seeing those companies grow, you would have seen yourself evolve too. I'm sure in, in your skill set, what you were getting good at. You rose to COO within a company, so you're obviously not just a sales guy. You must be an operations guy as well. When you were about to then start for the first time your own company um, with Interviewed. How did you make that decision of what market to go after given everything you had done up to that point? And, and what was your strength at that time? Yeah. So the, the sort of, you know, easy revisionist history, so to speak, right, is, is always that, oh, you know, I was working in this real estate tech company and we came up with this idea that was in ultimately sort of the talent and HR and recruiting tech space, which was an assessment company. And sort of the, the history was about a year before we started the company, our CEO had tasked myself and one other person who became my co-founder. He was the sort of head of growth at the company to figure out why we were having so many problems as we were sort of blitzscaling this company. We went from, I think, like 8 or 10 people to 60 or 70 people in like a year. And so as we were scaling rapidly, we were very effective, highly effective, I think, at hiring and retaining really high quality engineers along the same 
time frame, we had churned through and like made so many mishires along like customer support, sales, marketing, basically all non-technical roles. And sort of what, what it came down to was A, we had engineers and engineering managers who were trained in technical interviewing and technical hiring. But we were also starting to use things like, you know, I think hacker rank and whatnot that were coming out of that that period, which are these short to mid-length, you know, technical screens so that we could actually do a skills test before somebody was hired. And that really didn't exist for the most part for non-technical, like everything still today for most jobs, but certainly then in, in 2014, we were hiring customer service people based on, hey, do we get along with you? Do you sort of pass the airport test? You know, if we were stranded in an airport together, would we get along for six hours with a layover or something like that? But it was it was a very flimsy way of hiring. How do you test for that? I mean, it's a, it's a soft test, right? Okay. It's like, it's basically, do we get along with each other? And that's like a terrible way to hire. But I right. think that the reality is, especially for a lot of young companies with young managers, young founders, that is just the, the sort of de facto way of hiring, which is, you know, hire your friends. And a lot of times that works really well. You get outside of that core circle of friends where you actually know their strengths and weaknesses. And in two hours, you're sort of like, hey, would I get along with this person? The answer may be yes. And you build this like very deep, robust, awesome culture, but then nobody actually knows how to do their job because you've just hired like fun people to work with versus like hard workers or workers that are actually skilled at growth marketing or at customer support or whatever it may be. And obviously some of those skills are, are, are learned and can be developed and sharpened, but that's an expensive training if you're hiring 50 or 60 people in a year that really don't necessarily have the skills. And so we were turning through a lot of people we decided to figure out how we could hire better people. And we started developing these basically like work samples in-house where when a salesperson would come in, part of their top of funnel interview process was to go, I would send them a Google sheet and they would have to respond to three actual like customers who are interested in purchasing, you know, the 42 floors platform. And so we would see their written communication skills. We would see, can they actually write a cold email? Can they respond to a customer for customer support? We would give them actual Zendesk tickets of angry customers or happy customers and see how they would respond. And so we created all of these like situational interviews for every role. And all of a sudden, hiring started getting a lot better. But internally, these were expensive to maintain because I was having to come up with every single one for every role. I would have to like manually send a link. I'd have to like then share that shared Google document with a bunch of other people on the team. And so we kind of thought, hey, like we should productize this. And so the two people that became my co-founders were both technical and excellent engineers, Daniel and Darren. And the two of them entered a hackathon in early 2015. We were all still working at 42 Floors. They ended up winning this hackathon where we sort of built the MVP of like what a work sample or uh, case study-based hiring solution or product would look like. And so the reality is we, we, we got forced into it. Like I don't think we, any of us would have actually created this company the problem was we won this hackathon and it was from Cyan Bannister, who later was at Founders Fund, Jason Calacanis, this pretty like stellar lineup of investors. And they all pulled their money and gave us $125,000 for winning as like an investment. And they said, great, like this company is awesome. You guys are going to make it. We also want to invest additional money. Where should we wire the funds? And it was like, we don't even have a company. We don't have a bank account. So we had like an extremely hard decision to make that weekend, which was we had won a hackathon. It was in this sort of like talent HR tech hiring space. We had four or five legit kind of Silicon Valley VCs who wanted to invest additional money, totaling about $300,000. Where can we wire? We don't have a company. We don't have a bank account. Should we create a company? And so it was a spur of the minute decision. I was actually probably quite burnt out of, of real estate tech at that point as well. And in the back of my mind for many months, I was saying, I do want to become a founder. I have no idea what the idea is. So some founders, I think, go through these multi-month, multi-year customer development journeys to figure out what they actually want to work on. This happened very quickly, very accidentally. <laughs> and I remember that Monday or whatever, the three of us quit our jobs. We left. We luckily had the blessing of, of Jason, who was the CEO of that company, to like, come on as an advisor and help us. And he, he invested some money and invested a lot of time in us. So it all worked out. But I do remember the feeling of like, oh, shit, I just left this like very hot, extremely well-funded startup as like a 25-year-old being their COO to go basically make like no money with $300,000 in the bank. Now we have to go hire engineers. Now we have to go like figure out how do we actually like develop this into a product. And that was sort of the beginning of, of Interview. 
Yeah, awesome. I'm actually a part of Jason's syndicate, so I see a lot of Jason, and he's a very persuasive guy. I can imagine, uh, you know, it would have been exciting to want to work with him as an advisor, investor. Yeah, yeah. He was, it was very exciting. I mean, it was at launch, so his like festival was the hackathon. And yeah, he and a bunch of his friends were the first, you know, three or five checks into interview. Okay, so I'd love to talk more about interview then. There's a two sides to this because you, you grew this fast. I, I remember reading your AMA. So it's like you went from, it sounds like this hackathon to exiting in two years time with the sale of the company to Indeed for, and if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, you said mid eight figures, you were sort of saying around the $50 million mark in the AMA. That's fast. That's a big number. Now, what I loved about that number though, and I'm very curious about this, is you said, you know, it was doing like two and a half million ARRs, two and a half million a year. So to sell at that multiple is incredible. But before you answer that, because I'd love to talk about that, I do want to know, how do you grow a company in two years? And especially because you said it was founder-led sales. It seems to be something that you've become a bit of a, a specialist at. Can you maybe just take us forward? So you've accepted the investment from Jason and, and his friends. You've got 300000 in the bank. You've got two technical co-founders by the sounds of things. So you've got a beta version of this platform for kind of doing a testing process before you hire people you're, you're obviously the sales maybe founder coo slash ceo you're kind of doing a lot of different things but you're not the tech guy basically right. yes. what do you do next like how do you day one start growing this business because you need clients i assume right so what do you do yeah we can dive into each of those things i'll start with the clients i mean the clients was another i mean it's, it's just pure hustle in the beginning so we have this idea like i remember all I think we did this hackathon, call it like March 11th and 12th. We sort of left our startup on like March 13th. And then like, you know, Monday, March 14th, let's call it like 72 hours later after we said like, you know, we're just doing this as a fun hackathon. We're like sitting in my co-founder Daniel's house in, in the East Bay in San Francisco going like, you know, kind of like literally, what do we do? And luckily, I ended up having two co-founders who were not only technical, but they had also built and sold startups themselves before. And so it wasn't brand new. And I, I would say that that's like a subtle thing that I would highly recommend if it's your first time as a founder. It doesn't always work out. And I think it, it actually probably... It's just a lot of luck. But the, the fact that they were both a little bit older, had had a lot more experience sort of in and around startups and had actually been founders prior to being early employees of, of 42 Floors was very helpful. And so it wasn't quite as sort of what do we do next maybe at the at the time for them but for me I think it was like hey guys what are we what are we doing here um, and ultimately we thought okay you know we're taking a bet that we're not the only company that has this problem we can't be the only company that that really sucks at non-technical hiring and so actually we sort of developed at 42 floors we had this relationship with a company called Task Us that was based in Los Angeles they are going public soon actually but at the time it was this sort of small customer service as a service, like they were taking call centers and scaling them in mostly Manila in the Philippines at that point, but eventually expanded to India and San Antonio and Mexico, sort of all over the world. And so big companies were starting to adopt this to do data entry, outsourced customer support, content moderation. And so we built a very quick relationship with the founders. We had used them at 42 floors. And so we we're sort of like, hey, we were previously a customer of you guys. We took a bet on you guys when you were early. How about you take a bet on us? You're hiring all of these remote customer service people all over the world. What does your screening process look like? And why don't you pay us just a couple hundred dollars a month? I don't know what you actually get for that, but like sign a contract. I think it was for $500 a month. And we will just like help you figure this out. We you know made up pricing as we go. That was, ended up being obviously orders of magnitude too low for an operation that's hiring and screening thousands of people. But it didn't matter. It was our first logo. And we sort of developed this framework actually very quickly, which was logo learning and lettuce. Like lettuce is sort of cash money. Logo is, do we get the logo from the customer? And can we use that logo to then sell to other customers by saying, hey, we have this company task us that's using us. Will other outsourced customer support companies then buy the solution? And they did. We really went vertical by vertical, starting with call centers. And started going down this rabbit hole of if we get one big outsourced call center customer support company, there's thousands of these companies out there, we can get five more. And once we get five of those, let's find like another into a company. So it was just a ton of cold emailing. It was a ton of hustling. It was a ton of you know tapping our existing connections. And yeah, it was, it was all sort of founder-led sales up to, I think, a little over 2 million in ARR. 
So for 18 months, it was myself out there selling, sending again a lot of cold emails. I think we had a, we had a, a slight advantage being based in the Bay Area. We had a big concentration of Bay Area based companies who at the time were quite small. I remember pitching DoorDash when they were like seven or eight people. They we landed them as a customer. We were at Uber's offices when they were fairly massive, but not quite what they are today in early 2015. We were at Lyft's offices when they were about three years old. We sold the Canva. Like thinking about these oh, wow. companies, we were just like, it, we we locked out because we picked a product that the money scales as that as that company naturally grows. Like if you're paying per candidate that you're sending through an assessment, it's very easy to land Canva or Lyft or whatever when they're 50 or 100 people. It's very unlikely that they just like strip out that solution at the point they're three or ten thousand people. And so we we accidentally again got lucky for you know the seventh time, as I've said. I don't think it was scale. It was just like we were around all of these other companies and we were using their products, they were using our products. And so it was very like on the ground, sort of in-person demos of this product and getting it into the hands of early customers. That's an amazing list of companies that were early, like that are now, every one of them, I think is a billion dollar plus company. Take me through a process of, so you're in the DoorDash office or Uber or Canva, whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you just do almost like a Mad Men style presentation of your your (laughs) software and and what it does? And also, how did you charge for what you did? Yeah, so I think the answer is yes. I mean, we had a, we we built out a sales deck. We had a product. We focused on getting to demoable wireframes very quickly. So the product didn't necessarily work. The first five customers were definitely taking a bet on on the fact that we could make it work. And ultimately, what the vision was, was taking every candidate that you're sourcing from all of these different job boards and running them through interviewed to do you know, an assessment. And then we would take those results. And instead of just seeing a person in their resume, we would enrich that with like all of this additional data. How are their written English skills or verbal English skills or you know, written proficiency or conscientiousness and all these sort of like soft skill things as well? And so we had this like range of assessments and work samples that was, you know, mostly very realistic. And we were, we did like an integration with Grammarly, I think, to do like spell checking and word count speed, which is super important for entry level customer support. And so we would enrich the resume with all of this extra data that you could get on a candidate when they applied. And so that was like the vision that we were selling. So we would go into their conference room. I remember pitching Instacart, pitching DoorDash, pitching Uber. It was all sort of the same. It was showing this demo of like picking a role off of their site and saying, you at Uber are hiring for lots of customer support. Maybe at DoorDash, you're hiring lots of drivers or lots of delivery people. Pick the number one role that we think their talent team is going to have a huge problem with today. And really, the pitch was you know, into recruiters, how do you make a recruiter's job easier? Like, No recruiter actually wants to be sitting down and going through you know, 1,000 resumes per day. And so if you can give them data, if you can give them signals on who's going to make a better not even a better hire, but a better interview so that you can be handpicking the top 10 or 20% of candidates versus just like reading their resume and then trying to infer without ever hearing them on the phone, without ever seeing something that they've written, whether they would be good on the phone with customers or good at resolving customer support tickets. And so that was the type of data like you could go through and we were doing these like very short sort of 30 second like video interviews. So it could have been an introduction. It could have been like a sample call to a customer. But giving you additional data points on what this person would be like to work with was sort of what the demo was. And that was, you know, ultimately sort of what we were pitching. And how much did you charge? For the first five or 10, maybe even 15 customers, I think it was a flat monthly rate. That probably got us to $100,000 in revenue. I would say with the first 10 to 15 customers, all charging them between $100 and $2,000 per month. $2,000 was sort of an outlier, probably mostly in the like, 300 to 750 dollar a month range and, and there was no like rhyme or reason it was sort of like uh, we think we can get companies to pay this out of their talent budget as we grew we started growing into companies that were doing extremely high volume hiring so i think we secured lyft as a customer first but then we were going to uber who at the time was significantly larger than than lyft this is like 2016 maybe and pitching uber we pitched bell so bell in canada was one of our big customers Telus International was one of our big customers. IBM was a big customer. Fidelity Investments was a big customer. So as we started pitching publicly traded companies or companies that had over you know, 10 or in some cases over 100,000 employees, we just said, okay, our cost is basically the same, whether you're running 100 candidates through or 100,000 candidates through. 
but the value to a company increases significantly based on the amount of candidates that you're actually running through this sort of you know simulation or this assessment. And so we started charging per candidate. And then we eventually landed on a base fee. So there was a minimum threshold that you had to spend, which I think for a large company was probably something like two to $10,000 per month as sort of a base software fee. And then for every candidate that you would run through, which for some companies was you know tens of thousands of candidates per month, we would charge you a small amount. And that small amount, I think, ranged from maybe a couple cents per candidate at the low end up to like a dollar or $2 at the high end, kind of depending on the volume. And so we got to $2 million with a fairly small customer count. I think we were at about 60 customers when we hit 2 million ARR. And then from there, we were focusing on just bigger and bigger deals. So just to clarify, is it 100% SaaS, like it's all digital, or is there a human component? Because I'm thinking you can ask questions, do a typing test, but you said there's some video recordings. Is that just the case of them logging into the software and recording the video? So there's no human side of what you did. Right. It was just video capture. It's a good question, though, because interestingly, right before we were acquired, we actually started building out a small team who would actually be sort of human QA people or human interviewers who would then watch the short video clip, again, I think averaging about 30 seconds and give it a score. So depending on what the client actually wanted to infer from that video so that their recruiting team didn't have to watch you know, tens of thousands of these, I think for an additional like 2 to $5 per candidate, this team would like watch the video, the short video interview would read the the work samples would actually read the results and, and give like, I don't remember if it was a thumbs up, thumbs down or a percentile score, but they would give some sort of like score or feedback. So then the company wouldn't have to have their you know talent acquisition people watching all these videos. And so that was an add-on service. We only ever hired a couple people for that team. And I think we had this idea to start augmenting that service by you know several dollars per candidate, maybe three to six months before the acquisition. So it was a, it was a sort of a promising part of the business that just never really took off because of timing. It's funny hearing you say all this right now because, well, A, I've just posted a job to Indeed, the company that mm-hmm. acquired you guys, and I ticked the box to have some of these pre-tests done before the candidates right. get to me. So that is clearly, you're responsible for that at Indeed right. happening. Two, I run a company called Inbox Time. I'm a co-founder of it. We provide basically email customer service agencies. We do over, we do your email for you, reply to your messages. And that company was born from me being a customer and needing my email outsource. But part of the hiring process for what we do is very similar to what you're talking about. Like we ask people to, you know, imagine these are some of the emails you had to reply to them. We test, yeah, your your writing speed. So all these kind of pre-qualifications because if we get 100 applicants maybe one of them makes it through to the end to get hired and we started doing that for another company i had a coaching business maybe six seven eight years ago we brought it in with inbox done and it is so important when you're getting waves and waves of applicants which ultimately are kind of low quality so it provides like a barrier that people have to jump over before they even get to the next kind of phase but you turn that into software which i think is that's the real genius part of this plus i think it's fair to say the fact that you were, and, and maybe this is my next question for you, if you can tell me a bit about the founder-led sales aspect of this before we talk about the acquisition, it sounds like you kind of had a beachhead strategy with marketing where you said you would get like one client in this industry, we're doing this for them, they love us, we could do it for you, it helps with your hiring process, there's social proof because this company, probably your competitor, trusts us. And then that gets you at least into the door where you can do that presentation you talked about. And then you do that for each company within an industry. And then you can maybe get another beachhead. Like once you got Lyft, you can get Uber. And once you get you know, DoorDash, you, know, you can get another delivery food company and so on. So maybe I've answered the question for you. Is that basically what grew you to a sort of a 2 million a year run rate? Just kind of beachhead more face-to-face meetings and presentations and like you said before really hammering the outreach with emails to get that started is there anything else that kind of is there a secret sauce behind the scenes that really really helped you to scale to that size no i think that's exactly right i mean i think the thing the thing that i would add is other call center companies other outsourcing companies would care a lot that we had one and then three and then five and then 10 other BPO or other outsourced or other sort of like call center customers. 
maybe even at two years in having IBM as a, as a customer was impressive to them, but it was like, they were much more interested in, you know, task us, the small company that nobody outside of that industry has heard of, because it's like, okay, everybody knows that task us is super fast growing, you know, zooming out, they they ended up going from, I think a thousand agents to like 50,000 agents in seven years time or something like that. So crazy growth, but everybody in the industry knew them. And then similarly, a lot of old school sort of blue chip tech companies were super interested in the fact that we had IBM. And I think maybe the way we got IBM was getting Dropbox or something. So it was this like leapfrog to get bigger and bigger clients, almost all within four verticals. So we focused very heavily on outsourcing and BPO, kind of early stage technology, which then grew into blue chip technology, financial services and telecom. So if you look back at almost all of our customers, they were almost all in those four verticals. And then it was sort of accidental again, but when I hired my first two sales reps, 18 months to 24 months into the company, about six months before our acquisition, we just said like, how do we want to chop up the world? I think from a sales perspective, you can divide it by by country or by region, or if you're only focusing in you know Canada or the US or North America, you could focus by you know geography or by East, West Coast, whatever it may be. But we just focused by you know company vertical. And so I was going after early stage tech. One of our early sales reps was going after you know financial services. One of them was going after telecom. And so you also get really good at speaking that language and selling into those roles and sort of saying, you know, I know all of your competitors. We're working with them, and and you can sort of increase the price, you know, as you go. Okay, and it makes a lot of sense. So, kind of rounding out towards the end of the interview, Chris, I've got to know. So, you managed to sell interview to Indeed for like a mid eight figures, roughly fifty million dollar price tag, yep. with only a two point five million annual run rate. So that's a much bigger multiple. Most companies, which are a SaaS, aim to like a three to five to six times usually profit margin actually uh, for a multiple. So a, a two and a half million dollar company, maybe 10 million as a stretch goal would be possible because obviously there's not a hundred percent margin. So more likely to sell for like seven, eight million dollars, but you're talking 40, 50 million dollars. So there's something special going on there. Can you maybe tell us why you were able to sell for that much, but also just take us through even why you decide to sell and how the acquisition happened? Yeah, so... The piece that I had sort of skipped over was the the funding piece. So at the point that we sold, we were we were lightly profitable. We we were a pretty small team, but we had uh, we had taken on about two million dollars total. So that first three hundred thousand as an investment from from Jason Calacanis and Cyan Bannister and a couple of the other kind of early angel judges. Two months into the company, we applied to Y Combinator. We got in. We went through. After Y Combinator, we raised about one point six, one point seven. And of that capital, again, we were quite strategic in deciding to raise from strategic investors. And so the majority of the capital came from three companies who were deeply invested in you know, future of work, HR tech, talent tech, whatever you want to call it, businesses, indeed invested as an entity through their HR tech fund, which was sort of a early stage investment vehicle that they had only done two other checks out of sort of in the history of Indeed. And so we were the third company that they had backed. We also raised from Workday Ventures, which was kind of a similar early stage, like probably $50 million fund. I think Workday had been public for a while by this point. And so big public, you know, ATS, $20 billion market cap company putting $50 million to work in early stage. Very, you know, not meaningful at the time for them. But having Indeed as a logo on our cap table, not only I think helped us hire really high quality people, but it also, you know, selling into talent teams when in those early days when, you know, we only had two or four customers, but saying we're backed by Indeed and we're backed by Workday and we're backed by Apollo, which was the other big one that was investing in a lot of early stage education tech, HR tech, things like that. And so they, those three combined were about 50% of the capital that we had raised. And then we also went after a bunch of sort of future of work founders and, and angels and advisors and got them to put really small, you know, five or ten or twenty thousand dollar checks into the company, and so we we had actually built the relationship with Indeed first as an investor. After two years, they became a customer. Where similar to your experience posting jobs on Indeed, you know, there's there's ultimately a spam problem. Call it right when you're posting a job, and so you post a job, you get hundreds of applicants. How do you now sort these applicants? What do you do next? The de facto thing has always been go to the resume. And so we sort of built that relationship as a customer. And then Indeed is one of these companies that, you know, ultimately, you know, their thesis, at least at that point, it may have changed, but 
they really like to build or they like to buy. They, they do not like necessarily the long-term partner option. There are some exceptions to that. But if you look at Recruit as a parent company of Indeed, this you know $60 billion market cap Japanese conglomerate that owns Indeed now, they also own Glassdoor, they own Resume.com. They're sort of rolling up the HR tech industry. Yeah. And so that was, that was just a big evolution from you know, investor to partner customer to like, hey, this kind of makes sense for all of us. Incidentally, that also, I think, helps with your, your exit or with your you know, valuation because at the time, we didn't know it at the time, but at the time, we were in this perfect storm of, I think, where you want to be as a company. We were profitable, so we didn't need to raise any more money. And I think you know, Indeed knew that, venture capitalists knew that. We also had the optionality of growing very fast where we could raise venture if we wanted to. And so at the point that we were acquired, we were sort of in the middle of raising a Series A. And then the third option is we can sell. And I think the decision for us to sell was ultimately non-technical assessments is actually a quite small market. And so it's, it, there's maybe $100 million to spend in the US. We had very quickly gotten it to like 2 or $3 million in ARR, which meant that like, you know, we had captured call it like 3% of the market relatively quickly. And there was certainly room to grow there. But I think the fastest way to grow was with a partner that already had, I think, at the time of our acquisition... For context, we were running about a million candidates a year through Interviewed. Indeed was seeing 200 million candidates a month apply to you know, their job board. So the orders of magnitude that you get you know, annually on those differences in sort of like candidate run rates was that Indeed was like the perfect partner to like take this business to the next level, integrate it into their systems and, and sort of scale it. And we loved working with the team on the investment side. We loved working with the product team sort of as a partner. And then, you know, the corporate development team, I think it made a lot of sense for us to link up. So they just approach you and, and a deal got done, basically? Yep. So we had options on the tables, kind of remain profitable, raise the Series A or sell to Indeed. Or there was, a, there was actually another partner who I think kind of legally we can't discuss, but they were another big player in the HR tech space. And I think that combination of everybody wants to have the best deal on the table. I think that's how you go from a three or five or six X return on, you know, revenue, let's say for a SaaS business to a, you know, 10 or 25 X. The craziest example of this actually is, you know, Rent Juice, the first company that I worked at, I think our ARR at the point we were required for 45 million was like $500,000 a year. So that is like a strategic bet at, you know, 80 or 90 X revenue, whatever it is on that company and on integrating that software within a now like massive company. And I think it happens, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, but certainly you see companies get bought pre-revenue for a lot of money. You see, you, you do see these like, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 X multiples uh, every now and again. Yeah. I mean, it's rare by the sounds of things. Like Very I rare. see so many companies, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that just, you know, exit for a couple of million when they're already doing like half a million. But yeah, it's great to hear behind the scenes. Now, I know you've only got another three or four minutes. I'd love to know about uh, Lasky, your, your current company, which you are, are focused on. Can you maybe connect the dots? So you have this exit. You're obviously leaving interviewed. You must be leaving a fairly wealthy man. You're already a wealthy man from a couple of other exits, property investing, and so on. What makes you want to start another startup with Lasky? And what is it? Yeah. So post-acquisition, I worked at Indeed for three years. You know, Incredible experience working first on assessments and then on enterprise product. And my two co-founders were also there. And one of them really had the desire to go start like a mortgage sort of property tech business. And so he left after three years and is now running a company called Steadily. And then my other co-founder, Daniel, and I loved working together. We wanted to do another company together. And we decided that you know we know talent really well. It's very hard for companies to work with freelancers today and, and work with contractors and so we wanted to build a platform for companies to do this at scale. So you have companies like Fiverr and Upwork and, and things that have grown, I think, on, on sort of like the, the microservices layer, like helping you do these like very short-term tasks. We want to help enterprises do the same thing. So help enterprises find the right you know, freelancers, find the right contractors, find the right agencies to partner with. Okay. So it's more like, like the peer-to-peer kind of matching, you're the, connecting the dots, but you're big you're going for an enterprise looking for an enterprise level employee or or, or even a team yep. exactly okay, fantastic right. okay well i mean lasky for l-a-s-k-i-e.com is is that company i actually had to dig around because i've been doing some hiring and that's why i went with indeed and so on so it's 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 amazing how much hr tech is out there so it's fantastic you're in that maybe last two minutes here uh, chris before you go 
as I said, you've exited, you made a lot of money. I think it's safe to say your biggest gains in all of this has been exiting companies each time you've, you've walked away with some big capital. What do you do with all this money now? Like now that we're well and truly past those early stages, are you an investor? Did you buy toys? Um, is it sitting in, in cryptocurrency? What's your, what's your strategy? All of the above? Yeah, well, all of the above. I just put it all in, in Dogecoin and let it ride. No, I... <laughs> as we do. <laughs> bit, bit, bit of that, no. I try to be very ambitious in work, and and I think it is a massive leap of faith to create a company. No matter, you know, certainly, you know, your first company or two, when you have very little or nothing, is a much bigger leap of faith. But you know, professionally, I'm investing a hundred percent of my time effectively in Lasky, and so with investment stuff, I like to keep it boring. Real estate funds, you know, multifamily, small amount of crypto, a lot of indexing into the stock market, and then just a lot of individual tech companies that I like, you know, putting money into from an angel perspective. Okay, nice. All right. So as an angel too, you must have some websites out there regarding what you do there. Do you want to share everything or maybe one place if if people want to learn about you besides obviously Lasky? I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, just uh, follow me on Twitter. It's probably the best way. Chris J. Bakke, B-A-K-K-E is my name. And that's also my Twitter handle. I think that's how I connected with you for this uh, interview too. So yeah. Appreciate the time, Chris. Keep up the great work. I love following these these amazing exits and, and sharing with AMAs and Twitter and everything. And, and hopefully yeah. we can connect soon. Thanks for your time. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to that episode with Chris Bucky from Lasky.com and all the other companies that he was involved with. What an amazing startup story. I really learned a lot from that and I hope you did too. Just a reminder, if you have not done so already, please share this episode of Vested Capital. It's episode number five with anyone you think who would benefit from hearing Chris's story and of course, becoming a subscriber to get all the latest episodes from me and the back catalog. So if you know any entrepreneurs, any uh, investors, anyone who's really interested in growing their own net worth and their capital, they will love this episode and all episodes of Vested Capital. So share the link. The best way to do that, you can send them straight to my podcast. Just look for yarrow.blog. You can Google that, Y-A-R-O. That'll get you to my blog. And there's a podcast page there with all the subscription options available. Or if you're already listening to this inside whatever podcast app player you use, whether it's Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, or any of the other ones, make sure you hit the subscribe button and hit the share button too. That's a great way to, to share it with some other people, post it on your social media. I really appreciate that. You help me reach more people who will benefit from this show and thus I am able to continue and do more great interviews like that. It's a really symbiotic relationship. You listen, you get benefit. I record more episodes and the virtuous cycle continues. Okay, I'm going to stop talking now. My name is Yarrow. I look forward to speaking to you on the next episode of Vested Capital.